So if you have your uh, phone, uh, I use it for recording the talk. Please don't use it for texting while we're here in this room. It's just nice for us all to stay connected. So I was, every year at Thanksgiving, I generally give a gratitude, Buddhist concepts of gratitude talk, which I am so fucking bored of giving. I can't <laughs> There's like seven, uh, well, I've been teaching 10 years, we're recording the podcast for the last seven, so there's probably seven gratitude talks on the site, so um, if you want to hear a gratitude talk, they're available. Um, and then I thought, oh, good, since I don't have to give that, I want, I want to give a talk that I want to give, and then I immediately thought of this talk on trauma that I wanted to give, and I thought, <laughs> A lot of people are going to see their families. Are there <laughs> Here to talk on trauma? That's not really necessarily a good idea. And so I went to, uh, I don't know how uh, giving a talk on shame came up, and shame and low self-esteem, but it just uh, popped into mind, and so uh, I <clears throat> threw some notes together. We'll see if it makes any sense. Shame is quite a wide spectrum of iterations in the human experience. We can just have um, feelings of guilt and remorse over wrongdoings. We can have feelings of disgrace, embarrassment, humiliation, loss of face uh, in a, from a social group. And then there's what uh, some Buddhist teachers like Tara Brock, I really like, call the trance of, of uh, feeling worthless, feeling inadequate, feeling inferior, mediocre, not matching up to. And these are sort of global stories about who we are, our sense of self, our sense of how we match up. And... Um, so I'm going to give an overview of how guilt and remorse, uh, the role it plays in spiritual life and in uh, the neural wiring of the brain, and then how it got turned into less useful feelings of shame and inadequacy, and then what we can do about it. So there are reasons that we feel guilt and remorse. Uh, as I say all the time, human beings, our species, its big advantage is that we are social beings. That's why our brains are so large. It actually helps us navigate through the treacherous territory of interacting with other people. Really, you can map the size of species brains by how complex their social interactions are. In fact, Robin Dunbar, the great evolutionary psychologist, has done as much. And that's why uh, we survived and became the dominant species, because we work well together. We can develop trust. We can develop a sense of security with others. We're not constantly on guard with each other's and constantly wary all the time if things are working well, that is. 
and we can actually communicate efficiently so that we can prepare ourselves for challenges and we can build opportunities. So the reason we have guilt and remorse is to essentially create emotions that, in essence, punish us for when we act in ways that harm others, that damage our relationship with the tribe on which we depend. In general, Dunbar says that humans gravitate towards tribes of around 150 people that we relate to, and we have smaller sub-tribes, families, and stuff like that, which are far smaller. And we would not have the capability to feel guilt and remorse if it didn't serve an evolutionary purpose. In fact, guilt and remorse are virtually universal emotions. In fact, um, a lot of research has shown that it probably, they probably, along with fear, shock, sadness, comprise some of the basic human universal emotions. There uh, was a study published by the National Academy of Sciences where they analyzed thousands of video clips of blind athletes from the Paralympics. Uh, and the idea was they would get to see people from all different cultures who would have very little common uh, social uh, priming for how to celebrate successes in athletics and how to mourn or feel ashamed about failures when they let their team down. And they saw that across cultures, across idioms, uh, virtually all the athletes showed the same visual, facial, bodily expressions with pride and the same facial and bodily expressions for when they felt ashamed or guilty over a mishap. There's a, there's a place called the Infant Cognition Center at Yale. And since 1992, Paul Bloom and Karen Wynn, two scientists, have been studying babies and they've found that as early as the first year of life, infants have a sense of morality and a sense of uh, remorse. In fact, they did this wonderful study that I like with the one-year-olds, they'd show them a very simple puppet play where three puppets would act altruistically and one puppet would act like an ass and take all the... I guess it would be candy that one puppet would share with another, then another, and then the fourth puppet would... Uh, or one of the puppets would take the candy and run away. So at the end, they would place the four puppets, each with candy, in front of the baby... And in virtually every instance, the baby would find the puppet that acted selfishly, take their candy, and then slap <laughs> the puppet as retribution. <laughs> so um, it's clear that we have some emotional wiring that basically creates feelings of unease when we do something that endangers uh, the survival and success of the people with whom we're associated. In fact, uh, attachment 
psychologists go as far to say that all human emotions are the reaction to how well connected we feel. When we feel sad, it's because we feel that somebody has removed a connection, uh, attention to us. When we feel angry, it's because we feel unfairly disconnected. But when we've done something that we feel has jeopardized our connection with others, then we feel a sense of remorse, remorse or guilt or shame. As we'll see in a little while, the Buddha used a sense of guilt, like all spiritual paths used to some degree, um, the feeling of guilt to create some of the underpinnings of karma. The Buddha in one of his greatest suttas, the Kalama Sutta, said the point of spiritual practice is, is that it doesn't matter if you believe in rebirth and all that, but if you do actions that cause harm to other people, you're going to feel shitty. He didn't say shitty, but I'm, I'm vernacularized. I'm bringing it into... Uh, he said it doesn't feel good. And when we act harmlessly, it feels good. And that is the most basic statement of karma. It's not a principle of, you know, you do something bad and then somebody else does something bad to you, though there could be that element. The real foundations of karma is that there are psychological ramifications to how we behave and how we think. If we behave in ways that solidify our relationships with other people and act altruistically, in all cultures, people feel better. And if we do something that jeopardizes the security and our connection with other people, then we don't feel particularly good in the long term. In the short term, sometimes we'll feel justified. <laughs> you know, I got away with that. Or that shows them. And sometimes we might even have self-justifications for why sometimes we do stuff that's, well, other people are shitty, I might as well be shitty too, <laughs> or whatever, however the self-justifications run. But in the long term, the neural consequences are almost invariably negative for causing harm to other people. Either one, we feel guilt and shame, or two, we live in constant justification for our actions, and that's not very pleasant either, having to sit around and constantly justify ourselves to our conscience. So that's the positive for the reason for why we have guilt. But as I'm sure you're aware of by now, there are also many, many negative consequences. I work uh, over the last, oh, I don't know how many years, I've been mentoring people, and a lot of the people I mentor are, in fact, analysts and therapists uh, who are interested in Buddhist takes, and very often, without naming names, they'll run by uh, me some of the issues that they face with their clients, and they will report that by far and away the most common emotional psychic injuries they encounter are people who have completely 
um, just are consumed with low self-esteem, consumed with uh, unbalanced negative views of self, feel that they don't match up, feel that they are somehow falling behind the human race, that they're not living up to some set should potential or requisite that, of course, doesn't exist. So what creates this very, very prevalent uh, sense of uh, worthlessness, inadequacy, not matching up, not being good enough? Why do we feel this on such a global scale in this, certainly in the West? In the West, of course, first of all, our culture is very based on individualism and everyone looking after themselves, and there's a sense of a race after resources. And that's, of course, one important element. Two, the spiritual paths that are often uh, very prevalent in the West create stories of things like original sin and prophets that were absolutely pure. So pure, they appeared basically out of nowhere. God fucked their mothers and then <laughs> they, and they never had a bad thought and they never, I was so relieved as a, when my dad converted to Buddhism, I was 11 years old, and I, out of curiosity, started reading. And even then, when I was reading the, uh, the books that my dad had around the house, I was so relieved that the Buddha had a lot of issues. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he grew up, he was kind of like a philanderer for a long time. He, like, lived in splendor, didn't really care about the rest of the world, and then he realized that he was suffering and decided to go off in search of true happiness. But he was not a perfect person, and uh, he had, uh, he was open about all of the experiences in his life where he fell short and created suffering in his life. Um, spiritual paths also can be extremely needlessly judgmental and shaming about stuff that nobody should be shamed for. I'm not just talking about masturbation, but harmless cursing, which I love to do, <laughs> you know, premarital sex, abortion, anything that so much of what the Western spiritual paths shame people over is such a punitive, needless uh, antagonizing and it inculcates a sense of low self-esteem. Then on top of that there's um, social prejudices. We have institutionalized um, uh, prejudices, depictions, negative depictions of people of color, members of the LGBTQ community, Anyone of any difference or any historically underserved community is made or depicted uh, to feel less than. Social status, people can be raised in families of limited financial resources. And then there are even more fundamental 
sources of uh, low self-esteem and, and feeling less than. We can take rejections that are not really personal, personally. We can get downsized from a job and it has nothing to do with our skills and yet feel that somehow it was about us. We cannot be picked for the kickball team in grade school simply because we wear glasses or, like me, have very little coordination. But we can take that as a global feeling of there's something wrong or unlikable about ourselves. And then perhaps the most fundamental form of low self-esteem starts in infancy with when we are children and we seek emotion regulation from our caretakers, from our parents, and we go to them and we say, this is how I feel. And sometimes our parents are welcoming and sometimes we get a message of that feeling, that emotion, that uh, perfectly natural impulse is not allowed. And when we get that message from our caretakers or from the people we're around or from the school teachers we submit ourselves to as infants, then we begin to feel that there's something about us that's wrong or bad or unlovable that we have to suppress, push down, and repress, keep down. And so that can start a lifetime of feeling that there's some, the repression keeps, creates the feeling that there's something wrong with me. In my childhood, my dad used to say that, um, or not say coherently, but sent me the message that any unmasculine behaviors was not uh, allowed. So any feminine or weak or anything that he felt was not uh, appropriate, that he wouldn't allow, I thought was shameful and had to keep down, had to not manifest around other people, which created shame because we have wide vocabularies of behaviors and emotions and impulses. Human beings are not limited to very few emotions and impulses. We have wide ranges of them. So what happens is shame creates a wide array of psychological issues from social anxieties all the way across the spectrum to forms of self-harm and isolation and depression. And uh, so how do we discern and how do we keep apart a useful sense of guilt and remorse over unskillful actions that harm others from a globalizing sense that there's something wrong with us, that there's something less than or inferior, that we're not good enough. It's interesting that the Buddha taught that Samwega, which was a gut feeling that he says was the core of guilt and remorse lied at the very heart of his decision to become a spiritual practitioner. But beyond him saying that it played a positive role in his life, he's also giving us a real hint there. He's locating 
the use of guilt in the body as a feeling that arises after a specific action. But the Buddha never ever associated guilt or remorse or shame with a global sense of our personality or our, our identity. Let me say this again. The Buddha would say certain behaviors or certain specific actions we did are unskillful. But he would never ever say you as a person are unskillful or harmful. He would always point to the action. And this is the key to how we develop a proper understanding of how to move forward with developing a moral life. When the Dalai Lama came to the U.S. the first time, there's a famous story of a Western teacher who asked the Dalai Lama how he taught people in his culture. Uh, at that point, he was living in Nepal. How he taught people in that Buddhist country to deal with feelings of low self-worth. And this created a lot of confusion for the Dalai Lama because he didn't understand what that meant. And then there was a lot of to and fro before his translate with his translators. His translators finally realized there was no word in his culture for low self-esteem or shame. But there was a word for remorse over one's actions. The Dalai Lama could understand feeling a sense of guilt over actions, but the idea that an entire person would be shameful was not a part of that culture. To me, that's amazing. So the sense that there's something personal about my identity, the moment I think I am this or I am that, as opposed to this action was not useful or skillful, what happens is the moment I turn it into I am, it becomes a globalizing thing that I carry around with me and weighs down my emotional life and makes me feel that I am in some way falling short, not living up to the deal, that I'm causing harm, that I am globally, that I am somehow heir to some original sin. And this is why I think Buddhism offers us a wonderful opportunity along with some other spiritual paths that de-emphasize the sense of a lasting self. The Buddha taught that we don't have a lasting, consistent self. We simply have, a, a, we have momentary selves that arise and pass based on experience and situations, but we don't have a lasting self. And because he reached that conclusion, that was the great triumph that allowed him to let go of the sense that people are inherently good or bad. And so, in the West, when somebody um, kills somebody, we refer to them as a murderer, and they become that identity. But in Buddhist countries, they actually use a different phrase, simply saying this person has, 
something along the lines has been convicted of this act, but they don't globalize it into a full identity. So if we want to reduce the amount of needless shame in our lives, we have to start with each instance where we feel any sense of remorse and get out of the cognitive habit of turning or having the first thought that arise be one of globalizing. I suck. I can't believe I did this. I can't believe I fell short again. What the fuck is the matter with me? What the fuck was I thinking? Oh, shit, I did that again. And we need to begin to develop a focus simply on keeping the action in mind and feeling in the body the sense of, oh, that doesn't feel very good. Having a story doesn't, in fact, really work very well in curbing behavior anyway. When people are activated or defensive or feel threatened, the first thing they throw out the window is the left hemisphere. Well, they don't literally throw their left hemispheres out the window. <laughs> but we generally tend to shut neurally down that, and we tend to be run by the amygdala, the striatum, and other areas that are not particularly intellectual or thought-based. We tend to just do. And so, anyway, telling a story of, boy, I suck. I can't believe... I called up that person, I went there, I drank, I did this again. All those stories don't really do very much because the next time you're fearful or activated, you're not going to anyway think back to the stories you've been telling about yourself. The rest of the time, though, the stories you tell will take a toll on you. It will create a cognitive load that will make your life far, far more difficult. So what does work is simply neurally associating the feeling of disappointment or remorse with the action, holding the image of what we did and feeling the discomfort and simply making the connection. It's interesting that in 20 years of being sober, I've heard thousands and thousands of qualifications from alcoholics and virtually all of them knew, years before they got sober, that drinking wasn't a particularly good idea for them. And they, all the time for those years, go, I can't believe I drank again. I can't believe I missed this. I can't believe I did that. But it's only that one time where they woke up and they looked in the mirror and they saw an image of themselves suffering. And then they had an image of the previous night drinking and saw the direct connection between the behavior and the result. And they made what's known as an implicit, physical, emotional connection between this action causes this suffering that sobriety takes its hold. So what we want to do is we want to get out of the habit of telling negative stories about ourselves after we make a mistake in life and simply associate the behavior. How do we do this is one, 
we develop a right-sized evaluation of our strengths by reflecting on the times and the actions that we do that create happiness for others and solidify our relationships, and we feel the sense of elation and pride in the body. So we're balancing off those negative feelings. Two, we seek out people who are not shaming, but people with whom, as the Buddha told his seven-year-old son Rahula, we can simply go to and say, hey, I did this and I feel bad about it. And then our friend goes, okay, yeah, you might not want to do that again. But at no point turns it into a globalizing story about our identity or our worth as a human being. We should, I would suggest, if I could any, put any should in there for you, if you know of any people who evaluate others based on pure material successes or physical appearances or on financial wealth or on any shallow uh, criteria, I would urge you to steer clear. Because even if they don't aim those values at you, even if they take it out on others, you will be in the presence of those values. And human beings tend to take in other people's value systems, which is why the Buddha so constantly emphasized being around people who are spiritual as opposed to materially fixated. You may have many, many funny people in your lives and you love how funny they are and how dramatic they are, but if they are fixated on material wealth or on status or on things that are materialistic and shallow, some of that view will creep in and it will be turned in your own mind against yourself. So just bear that in mind. So finally, for a very short exercise to end tonight's talk, I'd like you all to sit up. Relax the body. And simply close the eyes. And leave your wallets on your lap. No. <laughs> <laughs> so I'd like you to bring to mind an image of something that you did recently that was helpful to someone else or be a skill that you developed on your own, through hard work. An image of something that you can do that required practice, or perhaps simply a time that out of virtue or care you stopped 
what you were doing and paid attention to someone who needed your help? And see if you can feel in the body a sense of opening in the chest, opening in the shoulders, a sense of lightness in the mind. Imagine someone perhaps that you love or admire saying to you, I see the goodness that you're capable of. I see the goodness that you're capable of. Now release that and bring to mind an event, a behavior, something that we did that we don't particularly feel good about it. Something that caused a sense of unease, a time we perhaps became overly angry too quick, or some time that we snapped, didn't take someone's pleas for attention into consideration. And simply see if you can feel in the body a slight sense of the chest becoming smaller, the shoulders moving forward, perhaps a heaviness in the forehead or around the muscles of the eyes. But then note, while that action may have been unskillful, I am not that action. I am not that action. I may bear the emotional results of my good and my bad, my skillful and my unskillful actions, but I, myself, are not those. 